welcome to the Foundations of Occupational Science course podcast. I really hope that you enjoy being able to listen to this course content on the go while you're engaging in other occupations even. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome to this panel discussion. I'm so excited to share this discussion with you. So one of the interesting things about occupational science internationally and specifically in the United States is due to um, its recent contributions to the fields of academia, that means that there's a lot of variation um, in how US-based occupational therapists get exposed to it. And most of us are gonna be in a position where we're gonna start getting exposed to it later in our career after we've been practicing in OTs. Um, there are some OTs out there that are coming into the field with programs that have um, really robust foundation in occupational science. And we'll have an example of um, one of uh, a, a clinician that's been practicing since 2018 that had the opportunity to begin her practice with a very rich um, exposure to occupational science. Um, for most of us practicing in the field in the United States, that's not really the case. Um, and a lot of us have rich, you know, decades longs of practical field experience um, with it being, you know, maybe a while since we've set foot in formal academics. But the goal of this course is to help occupational science feel like a welcome subject to everyone. And from that, we're really going to start off this first module with a really open dialogue about what it's like to get exposed to occupational science at different points uh, intergenerationally. And so in this discussion, we have included Dr. Susan Burwash. So Dr. Susan Burwash, she's been a practicing OT since 1979. Uh, so she kind of is our represent representative of really getting exposed to OS as it was developing in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and she's going to discuss with us what kind of it felt like to enter the field with a very practical-minded education that didn't really have much in terms of uh, having a theory-driven practice or kind of a operationalized understanding of occupation and how um, searching for that really drove her to occupational science and even developing a, a tradition for occupational research through the lens of narrative inquiry. Uh, so she really has gotten to contribute to this field as a clinician and, and as a scholar, having really, you know, late and mid-career exposure to occupational science. We'll also have included in this panel discussion Dr. Karen Dwyer, who is our Generational X panelist. She's a practitioner, um, occupational therapist here in the United States, where she's been practicing since 2001. She entered the field at the bachelor's level right posed in the timeline of our developing international conflicts within the U.S., as well as the major changes to Medicare's PPS system that really impacted a lot of our Generation X therapists out in the field. Um, she's worked in a variety, very, widely varied range of practice settings, working in travel therapy, just like me, um, but also doing a lot of powerfully focused work with veterans through the Veterans Administration and is now developing emerging practice. Really, after 18 years of practicing in the field in a variety of settings, she hadn't really heard of occupational science before until we were both in a class together in 2019, 
at the post-professional doctorate program at the University of Utah. She's going to talk to us about how this was something she was really resistant to at the beginning, especially the concept of occupational justice. However, through this resistance grew a persistence and it ended up being the focus of her doctoral work. And now she sees occupational science as a lens that emboldens not just her um, upcoming emergent work, but also how she can better understand her past work and how she's always been working um, around the um, occupational alienation and justice issues relating to her clients. Um, so she's a great example of how like exposure to occupational science through engaging with these concepts and having a navigating a disorienting dilemma and really changing her worldview um, entering you know this conversation as a bachelor's level OT it's now a very empowering part of her life. Um, I'm going to be the discussion facilitator but I will be the <laughs> requisite millennial representative and really I had some exposure to occupational science in my master's degree program and just like uh, D Karen, Dr. Dwyer, I didn't really get um, as much of an in-depth exposure until I got exposed to it in the post-professional doctorate program. From there, it really was what I needed to feel more empowered about the future of OT and, and seeing sort of the international programs that were developing in other countries and how starved we are for that in the United States. I now feel super motivated to help bring this um, wisdom and open uh, the conversational table on occupational science for other clinicians because I really do think that we need this lens and this mindset to practice here in the U.S. Lastly, as our Generational Z representative, we have Anna Brenzier, a master's level OT practicing in Canada. She graduated from Dalhousie with a, from a program that really uh, invested in occupational science as its solid foundation. Um, this has allowed her to enter the field with an active occupational science lens where she is able to actively theorize with her clients in community-based settings and use occupational science as a lens to help clients collaboratively find ways to make meaning of their experience and to collaboratively problem solve in the context of their naturalistic environment. She feels empowered to develop new theories and to um, understand occupational experiences through the lens of occupational science, and it's allowing her to rapidly develop innovative programs with a solid foundation and utilizing the language of occupational science in her documentation is even helping her with um, various stakeholders and payers in her community. And she utilizes occupational science not just as an occupational therapist, but just in her own life as an occupational being and her occupation as an activist and community builder and exploring diverse in interests and research. And she really has some great inspiration um, to help us brainstorm how we can start practically applying an OS lens in our practice, you know, starting tomorrow. One of the things I loved about this conversation is that even though we are practicing OTs from, you know, all different generations, there ended up being overlaps in all of our different areas of practice, even across the Canadian border. We were able to connect on shared interests and get inspired by the different um, lenses of problem solving and how we're all part of the growing occupational narrative of occupational therapy and occupational science across borders. It truly was an inspiring conversation and I look forward to you joining in and hopefully feeling empowered through some peer examples and how we can start engaging with occupational science and applying it to our practice and to our personal lives no matter where we inhabit, what practice setting we're in, what our educational background was, 
or kind of what our goals are, we really can collaborate and support each other across intergenerational lines and have so much to learn from each other in our different experiences as occupational therapists and emerging occupational scientists. So thank you so much for joining this conversation and I'm so excited to share it with you. Hello, welcome everyone. I'm so excited to host this intergenerational dialogue. We are all clinicians just like you have where we got exposed to occupational science at different times. And I chose a good sample so we can kind of talk about some of the challenges of taking on occupational science and sort of the, the benefits and value that we've had from going on this disorienting dilemma journey along with you guys. I want you to know that you're not alone. We're all traveling on this journey together and we're all kind of on different timelines and we all have different perspectives that can really fill in the gaps and we want to create um, a culture of supporting each other on this journey. So that's what I'm inviting you in and I'm bringing some of my good allies and cohorts that have been um, a great model of how we can collaborate as intergenerational OTs. And in that regard, I want to invite them to introduce themselves. They're also going to let us know what their background is as an OT and how they found themselves kind of embraced by occupational science. Can we start with you, uh, Dr. Susan Burwash? Hi, yeah, I, I'm happy to be the, the boomer representative on this panel. Late boomer, but you know, still a boomer. So I am Canadian. I graduated from the University of Alberta with a diploma in occupational therapy in 1979 and immediately um, began working in the field of, of psychiatry in a psychiatric evening hospital, which was specifically designed so that people could continue to do what they needed to do during the day. So go to school, work, parent, but had... And then had therapy in the evening, and and it was uh, a group psychodynamic program, very different from anything I'd really been prepared for, but also really fascinating. So I, I've worked um, in psychiatry in a variety of settings uh, in Edmonton and Calgary, uh, Alberta, and in um, Vancouver. In Vancouver, I worked um, again mostly with. Um, folks um, who were community dwelling. I did some inpatient work and I first kind of connected with people who were connected to OS in the mid 80s because I worked with Melinda Suto who would later become one of my colleagues at UBC and she was um, someone who'd finished doing an MA at USC with Galia Frank and so I started to hear just about, you know, anthropological approaches to looking at disability. And um, so that was the very first glimmers. And then I... Um, I was just curious, too. Do you mind? Um, I'm curious, what was your... Um what were some of the main features of OT education at that time? Did you graduate, like, was that at also like, quote, unquote, bachelor's level? Or what were some well, of the main influences of um, um, OT education? At that point, it was pretty much, much more focused on skills. So, I mean, that diploma was three years. I could have gone on to do a second bachelor's degree, but I already had one. So, so it was largely a theoretical. There was a beginning of 
I mean, certainly we we learned about some theory, humanistic psychology, some of those pieces. The the actual environment at that point, which much was much more behavioral, and that I I that wasn't something I was up for. So. Kind of like occupational behavior theory, kind of more of the Mary Riley work was maybe somewhat well, influential even or for, even well, I suppose. Early in my career, maybe there was some Mary Riley work, but it was even before that. So I was practicing a theoretically and not Mm -hmm. not bound by anything that I would call OT other than the skills and my interest in science of, of directing participation. I think that's one of the old definitions of OT. So, so my problem was early on is that I didn't feel like I had that occupational core. So really all the things that I've done since then have been to find that occupational core to try and help students find an occupational core. Was to feel that void. There was yeah. like a void and you're trying to, ah, I need to feel and sort of satisfy where this feels more yeah. solid. And then I think the other piece of my puzzle. I mean, there, there's there's links to OS all the way through, um, mainly through a variety of people. Um, Sue, Sue Forwell and, and Melinda were my colleagues when I was at UBC as a faculty member, meeting Gail Whiteford and, and talking with a friend who was very good friends with Ann Wilcock. I mean, it's, it's these people whose work I started to follow, the OT Without Borders folks. And then much later, and, and I suppose I should say that my, my background is mostly mental health, but also work rehabilitation, which has a huge psychosocial component to it because mostly people are having a hard time going back to work because they're going back to a toxic environment or they're traumatized by their injury. So, so after that clinical practice, then I started a, a variety of academic experiences at UBC in Texas, uh, at University of Alberta, where I did my master's and then my PhD, and then at Eastern Washington, where I met Josie. So, so all the way along, there's been this this thread of OS and this interest in in, in OS. And for me, it's mostly and and this interest in social justice because a lot of my work in those programs was actually supervising students who were going out into inner city missions, to um, women's shelters, to centers that work with people with addiction, and having to, out of the thin air of not having anyone else there, understand how to support people in their occupation. So, So there's always been that really strong community focus for me, and that sense of how do we how do we practice as occupation focused and occupation based um, practitioners? So so bringing that and then the other thread for me is always narrative. I've been so lucky to have been starting with my master's, where I did quite a bit of study related to qualitative research in general, with some of the early proponents of that in our in the field of OT, and then in my PhD where I got the un believable experience of getting to work directly with Jean Clandinen, who I consider the, you know, the epitome of narrative inquiry development. So uh, I, I feel 
like I've always um, been making those connections between OT and OS and the ideas of OS and the, the, that core of occupation. And then I think bring my own interests as a as an artist and a musician and all those other things that I consider my meaningful occupations into practice in whatever way I can. So that's, that's the very short version of 40 years. That's sounding like uh, I'm seeing as you're expressing that sort of like the, the driftwood and the river bank of how there's maybe these OS threads along your, your Kawo river that that has been, it ended up being resourcing in some way. And I was just a quick, quick, question and I'll pass on to to Karen and give some uh, some context on your journey towards OS as well. I was curious in relation to OT education in the 60s and 70s, was there any conversation of that social justice lens or was that somewhat of a divergence that um, the OS perspective brought in after? I think there was. One of the things okay. that happened in Canada was the, it started with the guidelines for client-centered practice, which... Um, one of the people who was super involved with that was Sharon Britnell at Bave, and so I, the guidelines for client-centered practice, I think, started that conversation about disability rights and things. Because certainly, the disability rights movement was pretty active yeah. in the '60s and '70s at that time, and that's actually, I think, a great segue to and in, into Dr. Dwyer's work um, because uh, that what we've I. I <laughs> What I imagine you've noticed as well, Dr. Dwyer, being U.S. clinicians, is this notion of having uh, a social justice mind as practice actually has a long tradition of resistance in the United States and that we still have a sense of OT practice being apolitical or something that needs to exist outside of the context of politics. And so that's one of the things that seems to inspire some resistance to an OS lens in some sectors of OT education. But I know that the focus of your doctoral capstone looked at an occupational justice lens. So it makes me really curious about your your journey as I think also a bachelor's level OT went, went through OT education in the United States. How, how did your journey go and, and did you experience any like disorienting dilemma moments in terms of that uh, exposure to OS and things that we'll, we'll talk as a community too, but would love to lay the foundation of your journey in this. Well, I think it's funny. The reason why I'm laughing is because the two things coming in, you know, 15 years after my getting my initial bachelor's is uh, when I when I went into the doctorate program and then <clears throat> myself and, and one other student that I kind of started with. So we went through the whole track together. The, the, the two things we were most resistant and kind of initially guffawing was occupational science and occupational justice. And I was just like, whatever, like fluff, like you, you, obviously, and that's the two things that ended up being the most present and are, are moving me forward into the next phase of, of my career and my, my occupational world, I guess. So um, it's, it's kind of amazing how that comes back. It but like just, rhetoric at the time when you first got exposed to it, did it just seem like jarble? Like this is just words that sound good on paper, but they don't really mean anything kind thing. All right. Yes, it was initially and I'm I'm a very occupational based person since birth. Basically, I was I always say I was born to do OT. And that the day I discovered it was the day I said, oh, yes, this is what I'm, and I 
focused from the time I was like 14 years old on getting into the right OT school. And, and I had very specific, you know, I came of age during the, I'm a, I'm the Gen X representative. So I came of age during the nineties when things like the ADA, you know, the ADA passed when I was what in eighth grade. So, you know, that, that kind of became a huge thing that I was super interested is accessibility advocacy. And I've, I've maintained that for my entire career, but also, you know, I had a lot of personal experience from the time I was five years old, I was diagnosed with leukemia and spent many months, years actually with Children's Hospital interacting with that world there. I always said I was going to become a doctor. And then I was like, oh, too much school. And then the nurses had to deal with vomit and poop and I had too much. And I, although I deal with vomit and poop more than I ever thought I would as an OT, but, but another story. <laughs> but um, so then it was like, then, you know, I, I learned about physical therapy and some of the other allied health. And I was just like, those kind of, I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. But then when I got exposed to OT and it was actually through an equine, you know, like through hippotherapy and this amazing OT that was at my church as my youth group leader, but she was also, she had this, this whole, like this whole program um, for uh, equine assisted therapy. And I started volunteering there and that just became a very super like, uh, I'm like, sign me up, you know? So I went in, I got, ex- you know, it, as a bachelor's, it was a pre-OT program for the first two years. And then you had to apply for your second two years. I didn't get in the first time because they were going almost heavily on academics. And there was like 500 people applying. This is at Colorado State. And there was like 500 people applying for like 50 slots every year. And so, and I, whereas I was, you know, we 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 know that the the, the brainiest or the the, you know, the book smart people don't always make the the best OT. So I was, you know, I was hanging in there with a low, you know, three point something. But um, so luckily that year, they they decided to change it to make it a little bit more well-rounded as far as the, um, and a lottery system than as far as you met these. Oh. Criteria. So, so I actually, I took a year, I switched my major to like human development, family studies. What's that? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I think it's feedback. Sorry. But and and then I applied the the following year, and then I was able to I was able to get into the program. So I was a year delayed, but it was actually it was it was great. So I I, I graduated in technically in two thousand two, but I did my internships for that. So it was two thousand one. Had a really a lot of really interesting experience because two thousand one, of course, September eleventh. I, I flew out to my first internship in Hawaii in behavioral health and mental health, September 10th. And I was I started the, like a couple weeks after September 11th happened. So that was a really interesting time. So it was kind of like these big issues, you know, these big worldwide um, issues that then, you know, led to the more, um, you know, some, some other, Always you know, lingering in the background, right? Yeah. All and it was like, you know, then, it was like, then we went into a war for 20 years and, you know, all this, this other kind of stuff that happened. Um, so I, you know, I, I pretty much, I graduated and I, I pretty much went straight into clinical practice, into a skilled nursing. That wasn't my that was my original attention, but, you know, I graduated in 2002 and it was right after, you know, I went in in 1996 into the pre-program and then they were like, you can just walk out and get a job anywhere. It's just fabulous. Everybody loves it, you know? And then they like, they ushered in PPS and like the, 
the oh. industry had, like, died for a few years. Right. And, but then it was like, it was kind of like, good luck. And, you know, I mean, I was barely, you know, I finally found a job in a skilled nursing an hour away. And I, you know, I took like what would be barely over minimum wage these days. You know, like I just was like, I just was desperate to get into the field. Um, Do you mind if I asked you, like, what were some of the core, would, like, how would you say your um, bachelor's level OT education, what would you say those dominant influences might have been in, in how the OT education was structured? I know, like, Dr. Burwash mentioned hers was very practical focused. What were, they, what were the major, like, fields of thought for your OT education, would you say? It was, it was kind of, it was an interesting time because, like you said, a lot of stuff started happening in the 90s and some shifting started to happen. So we kind of got that practical side of things, but then it was kind of mixed in with they were starting to really develop a lot of the frameworks, a lot of the models of practice. And then this whole concept of evidence-based practice was just kind of like they had to really define what it was. And I even noticed the definition that I was given in like 1999 was very different from, you know, the definition and and going through the evidence-based practice courses in, you know, 2020, you know, so it's, it's, it, it shifted a whole lot. So there was, there was definitely like, here's how you, and of course, you know, we didn't have like where you could just go onto the online library. So there's like, here's how you can go look up studies, but there's not much. So a lot of borrowed research, a lot of, you know, like kind of, it was very much in its infancy. And like I, like I've said before, I never know, I never heard of occupational science in 17 years of practice and going through school, I never heard it. Not even really? once, even the notion of the word. Can I make some guesses about that time? Uh, I'm just from, I, I would imagine that maybe Jane Eyre's work was starting to get some traction in the field. This would have been before the practice framework was implemented in the field. You would have graduated kind of before yeah. that got introduced to the clinician audience. And then it probably was a strong biomedical and biomechanical focus with where Medicare was out at that time and how many prosperous, seemingly prosperous opportunities there were in post-acute yeah. care. So I, I'm imagining that had a strong influence on your OT education. Yeah. Well, yeah, because then, you know, I kind of, you know, that was just where I was going to start out. And, and then skilled nursing kind of ended up being what I did because then I started as a traveler and that was a vessel. It paid the best. And I could, that's where the jobs were all over. You know, I've worked all over the country, you know, for, you know, mostly in skilled nursing, some others, but that's, that was where the money was. And, the, and then there was a the glory days of that too. When, when they figured out how to effectively use PPS instead of just being like, Oh my gosh, this is going to, you know, so they started, there was a real hiring uptick and, and a lot of demand since then until, you know, they, until they just said, okay, you guys, until the, until the yeah. fraud, and the, the, the abuse started coming into it. But, you know, I had probably a, my first five years. I mean, it was very much like go about, and then we're going to have a meeting. And then you look at, you tell us what they need and give them only what they need. And we can ramp them up and the rug levels and everything. It was great. And we were like, you know, groups and it was um, model of human application or any Kilhofters work come up while you were in school. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, Kilhofner was very big. Um, when I, yes. Nineties. Perfect. 
Do you mind if we segue and then we'll have kind of a group open discussion on some of these other things too. Anna, I'm, uh, you're, you're more like, well, Kristen, your OT education, did you, am I thinking right that you graduated OT school in 2019? 2018, but very close. Very close. Yeah. So I'm Anna and I'm an occupational therapist on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, on the currently on the territories of Songhees, Hungan peoples, and the Hung peoples. Yeah, Songhees of Hungan peoples. And I practice in the community. So I'm in my car. I just saw someone. <laughs> I basically meet people wherever they feel most comfortable and whatever makes the most sense for them to work on their goals. So I, we have a clinic, we have offices there that we can use, but I tend to meet people in coffee shops, at their home, grocery stores, parks, wherever. And I graduated from Dalhousie in 2018. And I was really fortunate because OS Lynn Shaw was the director of the school at the time. And she's very into OS. So she brought a lot of OS into the program. It was one of her like, goals. And we were there when she was getting to the program. So she brought in a lot around work and understanding occupations from an OS perspective. And then I was also really fortunate to do my research project and to learn with um, Dr. Nikki Kapek. So Nikki looks at substance use and the sanctioning of occupations like sex work, making money on the streets, lots of different occupations that are typically hidden from view in the broader OT world and literature. They're not often things that get talked about. But because I got to learn from Nikki, I was like, okay, what's this process of sanctioning? And just looking at non-sanctioned occupations and looking at it across contexts, looking at substance use and like looking at, okay, why is it more acceptable in this profession, but less acceptable for these people to do it? Like kind of grouping people and like who's acceptable for two substances, who's not, and having those open discussions. And yeah, so this was kind of where I was introduced to OS. So I entered practice in 2018. I actually started in a hospital in acute elective ortho. And I'm very much a mental health OT, I learned. So <laughs> I was, that was just, it was, not the right fit for me. It's like lots of people are really great at that role. But for me, I was just like, eh, this is exactly incongruent with like why I became an OT. Um, so then I took four months off from practice and my family, my grandparents had just passed away. It's a bit of a personal health, like family situation. And my family members in Austria are really struggling. So like, I'm going to go to Austria because then I can kind of support my family who are struggling with mental health stuff and I can figure out my life figure out what I want to do. So then I went into community OT. And so I'm in private practice here, which so you might be more familiar with. It's just I work a lot of people injured in work, injured in car accidents. I work a lot with veterans, currently serving members in the Canadian forces through DND and people who have long-term disability insurance. And I'm hoping that we'll get to start seeing people with short-term disability insurance because some plans are starting to add it. But just right now, it's if you don't have money, you can't pay or if you're not funded by any of the other services, then it's not publicly available. But most of my work is with veterans. And that's what I was talking about at the conference where I met Josie, because it's that transition and the occupational disruption as veterans go from military life to civilian life. 
there's many different factors there. So OS really gave me a lens to exploring this with veterans and looking at how, what's your individual experience with these factors. Um, so it's going from like doing collective occupations together as a unit and how that their routines are very much commanded to then living alone and being entirely responsible for routine, having a loss of meaning of the occupation of working out because before for a lot of veterans, it was to be a good soldier. And then in civilian life, they're like, well, I'm not a soldier anymore. So I know it's healthy for me. I know it like helps me think more clearly. I know it helps my mental health. I know it helps my physical health. But that's not enough to motivate me to do it. I need to find something meaningful there. I've had veterans where we worked with kind of looking at, again, sanctioning of occupations, sanctioning of gender and gender expression. So in the military, there's finally how for them, they couldn't, felt they couldn't express themselves. And while the referral, a lot of veterans referred to me for adjusting to civilian life. It was kind of like, how can we look at civilian life? What is civilian life even? Like, what does that even mean? Like, specific to Victoria, BC. So, bringing that OS lens has really helped me to bridge that with veterans so we can look at it together and figure out, okay, what roles do I want to have in civilian life? Who do I want to be in civilian life? And what do I want to do? I don't always use the OS terms, but like, this reminds me of something we study in OS. And this is like kind of what it means. Some veterans are very philosophical and they're like, What's that called? And then we'll I'll actually use the OS terms, but it's kind of adapting it to each person I meet. So yeah, one person that they wanted to explore their gender. So we want they need had some PTSD and had a trauma response in crowds. So we went one of their exposure sessions was we went to a shopping mall and went shopping for clothes that were gender affirming. So really looking at okay, bringing in OS, understanding context, and then. I also use it as an OT, as like a critically reflexive lens. Look at my own practice. And as a clinical team lead, I'm like, how are we doing occupational therapy? How is this supporting people and actually getting back? And how are we putting up barriers? How are we maybe sanctioning occupations within our own space? I've been heavily influenced by sanctioning occupations. <laughs> it's probably one I'm most familiar with. But like, how are we sanctioning occupations in our own space in relation to civilian contacts? How are we sharing with people? Is the way that we're sharing people even sanctioning them? Or like, can we show them just an open way of just noticing? Do you, do you mind elucidating <laughs> that concept a little bit? I actually haven't heard of it before. The okay. sanctioning occupations? Yeah, so sanctioning occupations. So basically, occupations that are sanctioned are viewed as illegal or deviant or socially unacceptable. There's a great paper by Kapek, I think, Felons, like Shannon Felons on it. Um, well, so other authors are, but it's from 2020, I want to say. And it's about the sanctioning of occupations. They actually brought in examples of like jazz music in the States okay. and how that wasn't viewed as like socially acceptable in context. And then with time changes, then, okay, now it is. So it's like the process of things becoming more or less like socially acceptable with non-sanctioned occupations being not socially acceptable, illegal, deviant, like bad, that kind of thing. Kind of what I'm hearing from you too is that maybe you came from um, a school where OS was really infused in the OT education and the curriculum. And maybe there was a really strong focus on 
occupation-centered and occupation-based practice, which if I'm not too presumptuous, Dr. Burwash, I think has previously felt comfortable with me sharing um, her uh, dissertation with this cohort that are going through this. So there's a really great exploration and how the challenges we navigate or that you found from your narrative inquiry, Dr. Burwash, and clinicians often feeling challenged to be occupation-based in practice settings. And it sounds like maybe you had some challenges in more of the elective orthopedic setting and utilizing that lens. And that, and then in the community-based practice, there became a lot of open avenues to really operationalize some of these OS things in practice and seeing a really tangible impact with these populations. And if you're comfortable with it, I would love to correlate the work that you're doing here and 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 compare and contrast it to with um, Karen, maybe getting to flesh out some of more of your journey. Because I know we were going through where it in the 90s, you kind of were part of that gold rush of a post-acute rehab. And then there was kind of, I imagine, a um, I had experiences almost like a group trauma for many of the therapists that went through PPS of having OT mean one thing and then totally pendulum swing. And it seems like I I still feel like I'm kind of stewarding some of my Gen X therapists through that disruption, that occupational disruption of that experience. And that it seems like that has created almost like a scarcity mindset or some of the stigma around occupation-based practice because there's a fear of having Medicare sort of punish <laughs> OTs again for being very generous with an occupational lens. But uh, you may not know this, Anna, but uh, Dr. Dwyer also um, has a rich past of working with veterans in the context of the United States and the Veterans Administration and has also, uh, prior to you coming on the call, doing some reflections about the challenges of navigating community-based practice in the home health sector in the U.S. So there's actually an interesting correlation in your current work and a correlation in the timelines of exposure to OS because I think Karen you got much more um, of a holistic OS education your post-professional degree where we're colleagues together I think we went through that same course together perhaps uh, with Dr. Polly Price so uh, I'm curious hearing about Anna's work and kind of how your work evolved after getting exposed to OS later. Do you see similarities in the work that Anna is being able to implement now in field? And do you think that work would have been possible for you prior to getting exposed to OS? Or how has OS really like expanded your understanding of what's possible, even in the U.S.? Yeah, well, it's that's an interesting um, question. I was really fascinated to hear more and how that's Things that might be, I'm, I'm, I was like sitting here going, I need to contact her more about this later. <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, but I started out um, w- when I transitioned to military and then VA after that. There was actually in Italy working in an overseas environment at a U.S. Army base for traumatic brain injury recovery. And so I saw there, I saw both um, veterans and that were working like kind of, uh, you know, civilian jobs in there in, in different capacities there. And then active duty who had just jumped out of the plane or they had been deployed, you know, these guys have all been deployed a bunch of times, blast exposures, all that kind of stuff. So I got to experience, so it was under the, it was a TBI unit but then what what ended up um, occurring was that this is always co-occurring to PTSD, to other types of trauma, to even like military sexual trauma, 
a lot of people dealing with that. So there's just this kind of this influx. And there was also, there's such a stigma and this is such a small base and there's such a stigma on behavioral health that they could come to the rehab department and see someone about their TBI and then all this other stuff came spilling out. So there became a pretty, you know, like I had this sort of cookie cutter version of what they wanted me to accomplish within my role as an OT. It was a lot of cognitive and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, I really, that's when I really had to kind of dig deep. And I, my experience the previous, like, you know, 14 years at the time was, was really got me not very far because, you know, when you go from a, you know, like a 90 year old who you're trying to help have a most independent and, you know, quality of life, highest quality of life for his remainder of time on earth to a 20 year old who, you know, you know, needs to be able to pay attention through a meeting and then go, you know, shoot a range qual of that keeps them acceptable into, you know, and they're, they're full and they're active duty and all this kind of stuff. Then there's all these troubles at home because like she was saying, you shut off, you you know, they just, they kind of just expect you to shut one aspect off and then go and become, you know, father of the year when you're just trained to kill other people. I mean, that's what the military, a lot of, you know, kill or be killed. That's what we're doing, you know? So, you know, and then, and then there wasn't a lot of support and they did have the transitional uh, TSP transitional soldier program. I went to them many times and I said, Hey, I think I would be valuable in helping, but they just, they, they didn't, they had no idea, you know? And so I saw a huge um, opportunity for OT because there was, there had been OT was very, cause it was contractor based. So PT was even more into like active duty, you know, type of, you know, commission officers that were, you know, also, you know, they were active duty, but they were also working in these, these certain roles, but OT had not really, they're starting to move into the actual active duty roles. Um, More OTs are becoming present and Baylor started an OTD program for, you know, active duty basically. So anyways, So it became like, it became obvious that, and that's part of why I moved back, part of why I started into a doctorate, because I was creating programs that were having those effective outcomes that we were talking about, you know, whether it was going into the virtual, you know, gunfighter gym or to, you know, like doing, um, you know, like a scavenger hunt throughout base that you got to go to the grocery store and you have to make a list on any list and, and use, you know, this app for that. And then you have to go, you know, set reminders to go pick up the laundry before you go home. And how, here's how to have a conversation with your wife about something that's been bothering you rather than, you know, like, so it was just, it was this wonderful kind of. Do you think that like having in some ways, like, it sounds like you were doing very occupational work and you were doing some things that are probably like pretty similar to what Anna's doing now. Do you think that it's helpful to have some of the terminology and making some of the terminology explicit in a way that I'm wondering if that's something that if you guys resonate with this idea that OS gives us some um, permission to be really explicit about, you know, where the impact of our practice is happening in context because there's sort of this notion that I hear in the States over and over again of that's what they do in Canada. That's what they do in Australia. That's what they do in the UK. It's just a different system here. We can't do it. OS is something for academia. It's not something for clinicians. 
But what you were describing, Anna, in in the context that you're working in, but can you see, Dr. Dwyer, where we functionally can probably do the exact same things with the permission that OS can give us through home health, through the VA? Like. As long as you have the words to describe it, there are the opportunities, wouldn't you say, in the U.S. to implement these practices? Because you're you're saying that you were doing these even before going to doctor school. You just maybe didn't have the words to describe them. Yes, and that's that's exactly that that's exactly it. Because and, and the the VA is growing in some interesting ways where they have now OTs are in the homeless program, you know, the HUDVASH program. They're in the um, caregiver support. They're growing into those roles as well. And so the VA is kind of our best example of a more. Um, you know, standard, like a, a more um, subsidized healthcare system, like what, what our socialized healthcare system, like what- we already have a socialized healthcare system, right? In the United States through yes. the VA, we just maybe don't, that word isn't as welcome or embraced. Right. And really, it seems to me that even in the US, a lot of OTs have found their home in quote unquote, traditional practice settings through publicly subsidized and regulated services infrastructure in a way. I think that's a total myth that like the U.S. doesn't have the opportunities to use a public health lens yes. on and it's, occupational. It is super interesting too, because like that, that was still when I first started into regular private, you know, entities or whatever, is that there was this minimal medical necessity. Do the most that you need to get the person where they need to be. And that has shifted in all, not just OT, but that has shifted into where you're not really like making those decisions. Like the surgery was the last resort. Now it's one of the first, you know, and the medication was only if diet and lifestyle changes didn't, didn't take hold. And now it's the first thing. And then, you know, we're trying to more opportunities for OT in the U S Perhaps, like, would you credit OS literacy to seeing new niches, niche, niches, niche <laughs> of opportunity for um, occupation focused, occupation centered, occupation based practice in the US context? I'd be curious what you guys think too from a Canadian context or what you see Dr. Burwash being somebody that's been a culture broker across the borders. Yeah, I'll, I, I don't know. I'll just quickly, I, I do. I think there's, I think there's a ton of opportunity for, to, for OT, OT practitioners to go out on their own kind of, you know, in a similar fashion to what Anna's doing to do, do nothing but straight up, you know, occupation focus, like taking, like you said, taking someone's whole day and just figuring out, you know, you know, and it's, you know, even just, I, you know, I've, I've got, I've niched off of that a couple of different ways, like with the PTSD service dogs, you know, and I, you know, I have my own and I'm now wor- working on a process to help other people self-train their own, you know, and, and, and you have to understand the ADA too. And, and, and what they say about service dogs. And there's a lot of misconceptions even with OT world. So there's, there's an infinite, you know, and I've worked a little bit with the sex trafficking, you know, survivors and those other kind of things too. It almost seems like OS gives us some containers to better contextualize that work, which like, I wonder, Dr. Burwash, are you starting to see kind of through the evolutions of contemporary practice and more OS literacy across so many different countries, 
Are you starting to see evidence of that framework that you were craving for in your bachelor's degree? Now, do you think, have you gotten a chance to see this tree of OS grow? And are you also sort of, has, how has OS given you, has OS enriched your future vision from OT after getting exposed to it? I'm wondering, Dr. Burwash. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I, most of the exciting stuff for me now as a retired academic and 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 I live on Pender Island so we're really close and we'll have to get together sometime I yes to talk to you about your work I actually um did some um, supervision of students working at a place called Vets Garage in 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 uh, Spokane which is kind of like a men's shed kind of movement so you know a, a a garage with all sorts of cool tools and, you know, things to make and working with um, vets with PTSD. So sorry, side, sidestep. Oh. So, so yeah, I think, I think everything that I find exciting about OT is now can now be sort of described using the constructs of, of OS. So I mean, that was just like Karen, you were maybe doing some of this work before too. like it was stuff that was on your mind and what you were doing. But there was a loss of the language to describe it or the guidance or framework and how to utilize it in a bureaucratic or a policy state. Like, did you feel like that was sort of missing in a way? I. I, I might be projecting my own experience, yes. but yeah. I feel like that there's, I'm wondering like through this being more visible, are, are you also sort of validated Dr. Barash too in some of your previous work that you were doing, but now you have some language to utilize? Sorry. If, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, some of when I was doing my master's degree, I was supervising students who were out in these role emerging settings and I didn't, at that point, necessarily have the language to talk about the fact that we were trying to, you know, work with occupational apartheid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, you know, having that language now helps me frame what I'm doing. And I think, you know, language, as you said, Josie, is really, really important, um, being able to articulate that visible in a way or yeah. even much more ability to be celebrated in the system it's yeah. like unfortunately i think in both the cultural context that we're in words carry a lot of weight and, and in a way that is a lot of at least in my context as an occupational therapist lately oh. it's sort of the documentation right it's sort of like what's reimbursed how we put to words and how we contextualize our work scientifically is where a lot of the policy leverage can be in wherever you're navigating these nuances of practice and how we try to wield this power that we have with the most responsibility, with the highest ethical standards, and hopefully with you know offering a um, constructive, transformative experience. That's my you know angle as you know continuing to carry the title as an occupational therapist in the United States and hopefully an applied occupational scientist. This is kind of creating these terms and being part of this lineage here, having the words to describe it is a way that we can helpfully move forward in an empowered fashion in the systems that we work in, 
But it in no way negates, I think, that a lot of the power of the work that OT has offered for over a century now and that um, people from all over the world have offered as occupational beings or even words that we can't understand, often this work is not describable, it's wordless, and it, it emerges in a wordless fashion. And that, I think, has been a systemic disadvantage to OT and the qualitative demand is it resists being described, particularly in a left brain way. <laughs> and it, it, the qualitative domain is tricky. It shifts, it can change on a dime, and it's rapidly evolving. So to be part of a field that acknowledges the power of that, it comes with a paradox that it resists being nailed down, described. And I think that's been a challenge that OT has had throughout its progression in a variety of different systems. Yeah. To me, OS makes that explicit and describes that we are deciding to wrestle with the indescribable and we are asserting that it has a measurable and functional difference when we wield it with intention. And so I think that, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, that the ambiguity of OT and, and, and OS and whatever for forever, you know, it's like, I mean, we had a whole semester learning how to tell people what we do, you know, and it's like, I mean, that was kind of the crux of the class was just defining it for ourselves and defining, you know, so I think when I start, you know, and then it's like skills for the job of living. And it's like, you're expect to know what people, you know, what you mean by that. And, um, and so I think when I was going through what I was learning about occupational science, so much into my career, and then I was, at first I was like, okay, this is a little bit, you know, but, um, but then when occupational justice and when that really like occupational deprivation, that was what really kind of anchored it in for me was that because that has, that is what I centered my whole first part of my career, working in the nursing homes, occupational deprivation, you know, you know, apartheid, all that kind of stuff like was very, Oh my gosh. What you were seeing like, it was what you were experiencing. Just because you yeah. didn't have the word for it didn't mean it wasn't there or yeah. it wasn't what you were doing as a clinician in that space or attempting to address, right? Yeah. And then and then you know, you take something like a pandemic, and that just further puts a big spotlight on what was already a problem. You know, it was already a major problem how we were depriving and isolating and whatever beforehand, but to have and, and and the work that we were all doing without maybe knowing it, but then I think really OT came into kind of its own through this whole thing. I've just seen some amazing stuff. I've done some amazing stuff, you know, that I was like, I think know, there's certainly an problem. invitation. I think yeah. there's an invitation yeah. that we can bravely, uh, one of the narratives I got to share with Dr. Burwash is I think that occupational therapy as a discipline has um, always been transformed and shaped by overly daring and undereducated women. There's been, in particular, and really we need to also broaden that definition. And there's a current invitation, especially from OS, for us to broaden who is included in our science, in our profession. And that is part of the AOT 2025 vision, is it needs to be more than just, in the U.S., it's about 80% now Edge, uh, women of resource privilege and education that happen to be Caucasian and of like settler descent in the places that we practice. So that is an invitation that we have to broaden our science. I, I think 
I'm implored to say that I think what I love about occupational science personally is that we, it's not new for us that we, that there's ambiguity around what OT is and what OT does. I think when you truly embrace the invitation that occupational science offers is it lets us understand that that ambiguity is actually where our power is. In the scientific context, to declare a false sense of certainty about something that is constantly evolving and that you are co-creating with your clients, which is kind of what I've heard from your work, Anna. It's like you're inviting your clients in to decide also what these words mean for themselves and maybe even to have other ways that they're contextualizing their experience. OS makes explicit that there is a therapeutic power in that. And OT makes that, that there's a therapeutic power in being able to have an active relationship and evolving your reality through occupation. So I, I, I wanted, I'm hoping that this course and letting more people know what these words are and to start playing with them and maybe even developing their own words and to realize that you as an OT, whether you're an OTA or um, a bachelor's level OT, or even just a prospective OT student taking this course, because you are an occupational being, and maybe even other words that better will elucidate what that is, you are actually actively already have been engaging in occupational science and these things, and that it's a, it's going to be an actively evolving conversation. It's not going to be a fixed, rigid, declarative statement about what something is. And, and that this is actually, I think, sorry, I'm just kind of babbling at this point, but we are part of, OS gives us an opportunity for this to be an evolving conversation rather than a fixed and rigid conversation. And that's actually what makes the potential transformative and therapeutic. We're not pretending to be certain about something that we don't even know yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think like echoing your point, what I, what I try to do with clients, like I'm trained in acceptance and commitment therapy. And I really use that as the bridge to bring in the OS concepts. And we look at them together as like, as occupational scientists, there was this podcast by Kwaku on OT and chill with Michael Sai, and kind of like anyone can be an occupational scientist. Everybody um, to be. Otherwise, we don't know the qualitative yeah. domain. You you have to. That's where the data is. Is yeah. with folks that are untrained. You can't be trained in it. You actually have to untrain yeah. yourself to be open to this work. Yeah. So we look at it. So with clients, I'll look at it together. Like one client is like, "This is my model of occupations. It's like I have my passions: fitness, food, fashion, projects, and there's two more. I can't remember right now, but like." That was what he wanted his like balance between in his life. Not like self-care, like self-care part and leisure, that's kind of old conversations now, but like that's he's like, this is what I want my model of occupations in my life to look like. And kind of making it together and co-constructing that and like bringing in occupational beings like OS, it helps us to really label what's happening in the context. And it also helps us describe that to funders. So it allows us all to connect as occupational beings, as human beings. Because I comment on a report, this person's experiencing this. I'll actually use some OS language. And they're like, this makes so much sense. Like the other day, I got a call from a funder. She's like, Anna, I love your report. I could see exactly what's going on for this person. And like, I basically used OS language. I had used the COPM as my main standardized tool. But the whole clinical entry, like, this is what's going on for this person. This is what we call occupational deprivation. So we call occupational, like, these are the transitions that are happening. This is, like, 
these key factors influencing this in her mental health. This is what we need to address. So it gives us that language to communicate with stakeholders. I love that you bring in like a very tangible, practical element of the funders, because I I would say in the U.S. that you know, I'm going to like, again, I I am assuming, I think that there is a collective trauma from this PPS that happened in the nineties that has gotten this automatic, like fear and apprehension around funders and the sense of doing occupation-based practice. There's a sense of it being stigmatized in the U S and we're fearful that it's going to be all taken away the rig rug underneath you. And I, I think almost in that way, having that framing around what happened in the past is preventing us from seeing current and future opportunities. I remember my mind being blown when Dr. Burwash in, invited Gail Whiteford to come speak to us as master's students at Eastern Washington University. And I believe it was around a time where she was initially proposing her um, occupational justice framework. And she had just um, published one of the new books and it was really looking at working with I think their parliamentary system at the time and at the end she mentioned that it was coming from the context of I think of like a 25 million dollar grant she got Mm -hmm. in terms of facilitating like a lot of like uh, aboriginal reconciliation work through an occupational justice lens and that to me just broke all of the mis- all the conceptions that I had in the US that you can't ever get paid to do work this transformative. And now it's been about um eight eight or nine years since I had that experience with Dr. Burwash facilitating that. And we're starting to see those grants come to the US through community social determinants of health, increased funding in public health financing, looking at diversity, equity, justice, inclusion. These are actually becoming financed conversations and research here in the U.S. But I think we still have blinders on that we think we're not allowed to receive financial opportunities in this way or to build businesses from this foundation. So I I guess I'm wanting to share that OS has expanded my ability to see practically what's possible and financially what's possible and also making policy visible because that's one of the myths that I hate so much is that OT doesn't have anything to do with policy and we're apolitical while we spend all of our day talking to the insurance companies, interpreting Medicare and special education law and um, navigating the financial disparities. And it's just mind blowing. So I, I love that OS gives me permission to acknowledge this reality. And I think we need to start claiming it a little bit more. I mean, that's a, like, I feel like my generation and, and maybe previous too. like, we just, we kind of got to happily for the first half of my, I just kind of happily got to do what I felt was best. And, and yeah, there was always demands. And I, I think the collective trauma is more how people corrupted the PPS system. Cause it was actually Medicare's always pretty much done us a solid since they initiated that. I mean, there's lots of areas that are reimbursed and, but they, they just, they took that system and they, they just corrupted it to the point where they they saw the money. And then, you know, when you go from a 70% productivity to a, a a 95% productivity expectation in the span of 10 years, it's just like, it's ridiculous. And on top of that, it's very stamped out, keep them a hundred days. You know, that, that's, that's what got to be the, 
you know, it's just, you lost the individualization and then, and it's no longer, it got no longer celebrated, you know, when I can help a 92 year old bake her five dozen cookies again, without totally gassing herself out for the rest of the day because of her COPD and whatnot, you know, that's how come we stopped like highlighting that, but yet, you know, OT or PT teachers are how to get into the car and they're like, we're champions of the year. I mean, that's part of where I would say having the loss of an OS formed education, OT education system in the US. So some of the context that maybe you, Anna and Susan are aware of, um, the WFOT, the World Federation of OT actually requires occupational science to be included in OT education across the different, you know, uh, credentialing uh, accreditation boards. However, the US has been, for some reason, somewhat resistant to the inclusion of occupational science embedded in OT education. And what I feel after being like exposed to OS post OT career, I got, I got a little bit because of, you know, professors like Dr. Burwash that was really mindful incorporating it throughout some of our, especially our mental health-based programs and qualitative methodologies. But overall, I would say it was maybe less than 10% of my OT education at the time. However, getting to be exposed to it in my post-professional doctorate, what I love about OS and, and acknowledging the policy domain in the context of occupation, in the context of occupational therapy services, that really gives you more permission as an OT to use more of a policy lens and to track down where the incentives are and where the actual documented evidence actually is. It's like, I like what you said, Karen, about some of this seems to be kind of misinformation and how the system has been corrupted. Because if you go straight to Medicare and read those requirements, it's very different than how they're getting interpreted. <laughs> and I feel like if... Um, we're able to translate an OS lens to clinicians on the field and give them the tools to figure out where the incentives are to do grounded theory, to follow the money, quote unquote, and see where it's getting diverted from our core attention. And to have that framework, like Dr. Burwash brought up, like now we have the words to contextualize what we're doing in the context of the policies and the systems we're navigating in. I think we'll be less easily swayed and potentially manipulated away from our core identity yeah. as um, a profession and a lot of our ethical and professional commitments to really play a role that can actually help constructively transform these systems around us rather than potentially being used um, in these systems in ways that could propagate harm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think about is in terms of languages Using the language of OS, we're never going to be mistaken for PTs. It's a completely different language. It's a completely different focus. It lands on the ears of different people, too, than using a biomedical lang languages does. And some of those people, particularly, you know, thinking about COVID and, and public health, I mean, they, they are using very similar types of language. So who who your discourse draws in, I think, is also another interesting thing to look at, look at and, and uh, capitalize on. To get your perspective, yeah. Dr. Burwash, like as a, oh, sorry, uh, one second to, I will divert right back to Anna on this thing, because I think you both could comment on this. I'm curious about being trained in a qualitative 
tradition. Now that it's kind of trendy to look at social determinants of health and a public health mindset or qualitative, I was wondering if you could speak to, I guess, the gift that OS has brought us about taking qualitative inquiry seriously for the past 30 years and how, you know, I think in a way that you're seeing a lot more of the biomedical model now like paying somewhat like lip service to the qualitative domain. And I think it's such an asset that OS gives us um, 30 years of taking qualitative inquiry seriously. And then I want to divert to Anna, please say what you want. And we can go back to that point later on if you want. I just wanted to say that bringing like the OS like also clients like kind of along similar lines to what Susan was saying, it can be really validating and like, and help them process like from a mental health perspective, like, what their experience. So in my presentation, which Josie shared with you. So last summer, this is a client who's more philosophical and wanted to know like, what's this mean? What's that? And that kind of thing. And he's like, occupational disruption. If that's a thing, like if the university is studying, a lot of people must be experiencing it. So then I'm not alone in this experience. So having that like compassion, that self-compassion for where he's at, like OS can also be bring, bring in in that way. So I think that the, sorry, let's see. I think that's so, I guess that's maybe I want to invite you guys to come on this and maybe it's just something I'm enthusiastic to embrace. It's just, I love that OS takes the qualitative seriously and it validates the lived experience of our clients and how they feel inclined to frame it without being dismissive of it because it doesn't fit one of the preordained And so I I do sort of, I am curious because I, you, Dr. Burwash, you've dedicated a good portion of your career at this point in becoming a skilled practitioner of narrative inquiry, which is uh, something that I'm hoping to, you know, invite others to pursue looking at. But do you, can you comment a little bit about, because, because in the U.S. we have such a stigma on the qualitative domain. How has that changed for you, like being able to use a qualitative lens through your OT practice and as a scholar? Yeah, I my my master's degree, which was in the um, late 80s, uh, my supervisor was an epidemiologist. And but one of our instructors was Laura Crufting, who was, you know, one of the very first people OTs to to publish on qualitative methods. She'd done a double PhD at Arizona in uh, rehab science and anthropology. So she was coming at this with an anthropology and a disability studies lens. So it was a very challenging thing to do to try and incorporate some qualitative elements into my master's thesis. Um, It was quite challenging. because there wasn't really knowledge or support for it. By the time I did my PhD, and I graduated with my PhD the day after I turned 60, there was much more acceptance of qualitative approaches, but there was very little knowledge of narrative inquiry as one of those. And so again, I was doing something that was very new. My my actual, my PhD supervisor was very supportive, but she lived in another part of the qualitative research 
landscape than I wanted to operate in. So I was very, very lucky to have Jean Clendenin come in and and co-supervise me informally because otherwise I would have had a really hard time. Did that shift then over your um, career trajectory of starting, like it sounds like you're really a trailblazer in a way in helping OT and OS like really explore a narrative in Corey Lynn's. Now in our, I think there's like six different classes of clinical reasoning that are embraced. And one of them is narrative reasoning. Has that been a new development since you started that work? That was, that started with Mattingly and Fleming. So again, an anthropologist and an OT working together and their pioneering work on a study, very well-funded study for the time on looking at how OTs think. And so that again has been a, a, a thread that started in the, I'm guessing in the mid eighties as well. And so now as a clinician, I'm appealing to your work and OS's embrace of the qualitative um, domain. Even if when I was working in something we have in common, Anna is doing electric orthopedic surgeries, which I fully embraced as more of a mental health OT because it's incredibly terrifying to <laughs> go under um, for a major life transformative procedure. And I found that having a sensory lens and helping with the emotional regulation and the transformation, I had zero issues differentiating my services from PT. It's actually one of the most symbiotic collaborations I've had working with physical therapy in an orthopedic context, because honestly, everyone gets joint replacements. I worked with a lot of people with um, cerebral palsy, autism in that regard. So I got to bring that whole lens. So maybe I'm just wanting to owe a debt of gratitude to you, Dr. Burwash, for investing in that work, because I think caring in this notion that qualitative work has its own rigor and its own sensitivities and its own need to have a regulated, you know, modulation of, I think that's going to give OT a strategic advantage going into these next waves of development of social infrastructure across the globe. I'm just so grateful to everyone involved in OS and OT that uh, dared to take qualitative inquiry and parts of understanding humans seriously for so long. And really quick, I know Dr. Dwyer will have to leave really quickly, but you, I think you, you experimented too with the qualitative domain in your capstone work that looked at occupational justice and sort of the co-occupation of pet ownership for older adults. Yeah, it was, um, it was more, so I did an occupation based, it was, I called it, uh, the PALS program, which was pets alleviating loneliness in seniors. And this came about very, very organically during the lockdown phase when I was, you know, and, and even into the following year, because I, I had to switch from what I had planned to do for my capstone work. And then I, I, I started by noticing that people, you know, they might have been afraid of other people or not going out of their house. And I, I noticed it, I live in a very, you know, where there's a lot of older adults. So I started noticing that and, and, and doing more research on it, animal, anything has almost 100% buy-in by any given population. And they're, you know, and then, and then as that developed where I started looking at, 
you know, seniors who are living alone, experiencing loneliness and so, social isolation as a, you know, the results of the uh, UCLA loneliness scale. And then, and then actually having little treatment sessions where I would bring my dog over, they would feed him treats. We made, we made dog treats. We had all this, it just expanded past anything I could have ever imagined. And it, the whole thing went under an occupational justice framework, which there's not been a lot of, 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 of the like, you know, uh, OJ done on Not much you know, applied research on that. You're on, yeah, on older adults, on social isolation, on lonely, on any of that. So, and then here it was, you know, put into the spotlight as a gaping hole of, you know, because a lot of people just were so marginalized by, you know, different lockdown, you know, uh, measures. And so it, it was, and it was, I had tremendous results. And even, you know, we're looking, you know, forward to, and concepts that I better understand because of occupational science, because, you know, like I, I had one that her dog had died the previous year and she was like thinking she didn't want to get another dog, but then she was like, well, maybe I could be a pet sitter, you know, maybe I could watch Oscar when you're away or, you know, like whatever the case may be. And then, you know, and then another person was like, you know, and, and they got to relive memories about when they had pets and, you know, they, you know, just, you know, maybe even, you know, walking someone else's dog for them or walking with them while they're walking the dog, you know, they went on dog walks with me and it was just like, all this stuff I had never even thought of. Like I was thinking oh, they could feed trees, they could ba bathing him, you know, like just different kind of stuff like that. And so it was, or just even looking at him holding, reminiscing, you know, this, all this wonderful stuff came out and I had tremendous results with my pre and post loneliness scale. Do you mind if I just bring up for the group here, you and I just took one class on occupational science. Neither one of we were both. I have a master's degree in occupational uh, therapy, and you had a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy. We both took one semester online course, like one sort of discussion post a week. Yeah, and now here we are, like a year or two later, just feeling really empowered to imagine these different roles that we can take our practice today. Yes, neither you and I. We didn't go to USC. We didn't go to Western. We didn't go and uh, follow somebody in Australia. It, we have permission, right, to do this work now. You know, Anna, too, you're not you're not thinking oh, I got to wait and go get this degree and go do this yes. before I can do it. We're all and, and, and we're also acknowledging we've always kind of done this work, too. It was also very empowering too, because I did a focus group with OTs and most of the, that worked with older adults or in animal assisted therapy. And most, all of them had, were more experienced, mostly boomer age. They had never heard of it either. They never heard of occupational justice, occupational science. They, some of them didn't even know we had a code of ethics or an OTPF. Now you just need to hear of it. And now everybody on this journey, hopefully, and here you now, hopefully everybody that's taking this course, you got four allies that's cheerleading you on to just learn this language, like to yeah. know that you've actually have been applying these concepts without the words for it, maybe for decades. And take a look around, like take a, take a look around at what you're just in your current practice, in your daily life. You know, I mean, that was my neighbors. I just from my OT perspective and then my OTD work, you know, with, with OS and, and other aspects of my OTD work, I was able to identify a gaping need and apply a kind of a um, innovative way to 
to solve an issue. You know, you didn't even really need to get fully published or funding to do it. You kind of made. So that's my goal is I want all of us like Dr. Dwyer and I, we just took one OS course. You guys all are about to take one OS course. You just kind of need to get an idea of what the words are. And by the way, these words are rapidly still evolving as we get to know more, especially about the qualitative domain. Part of my intention and what I hoped us all as sort of role models for you guys and peer mentors that we're going through this together, we're clinicians just like you. And and by the way, this is going to evolve beyond our understanding of it in the years to come. This is a conversation. This is a table that you get to be a part of as a human being, as an occupational being, but certainly as a practitioner, as an OTA, an OT student, and a bachelor's level OT, your master's level OT. You just need, you get to know the words, get to join this conversation and this dance and be a part of evolving this rapidly evolving world that we're a part of. This is nothing special just because we got to be in a course in a fancy building and hear from these people. You're just as capable of learning these words and translating them in the context that you've already been living. And you very much could be the thing that offers a new concept that could really totally transform how we understand occupation in a way of feeling this. So I, I just wanted to take the opportunity before I know you had to step off soon, Dr. Dwyer, just to contextualize, you started as, uh, you know, like bachelor's level OT post 90s yep. and not thinking, you said, I'm the most resistant to OS and occupational justice did not really, these did not, they just sounded like abstract terms and like propaganda and social justice woke rhetoric. I don't yep. mean to say if that could have been something, but then you just danced with them a little bit, even of a couple months. And it ended yep. up now just totally making, contextualizing your work in a different way and yeah, and also just putting it into a framework or a model of practice and finding those different, um, you know, theories and, and and really delving into that. That was something that was just kind of coming out. And then once you get into real world, you know, getting getting through your day and you have this pro, you have this patient list and you have, you know, it's like that's something that kind of happens on the, you know, on your spare time where you might read a study, but you don't you don't even know how to look for studies or look for other people. This world is sort of you know, in it's a lens, you can kind of do it while you're there. You can be like, well, what is this policy and where did it stand? And that person's an occupational being, maybe they're getting, uh, maybe they're feeling burnt out because they had a major occupational disruption. It now is like this field research that you can kind of do all the time just by having this lens of looking at your own context that way. And I realized I had been doing it all along. You know, I had been doing it all along without having sort of the official academia, like the, the, you know, and the discipline of knowing right. how to fully develop and flesh out these kind of things. So that's the real power of something like this. And, and when you're, if, if you're looking around seeing something and it's like, but nobody's ever done that or no, you know, we don't, we, other people don't know much about it. That's your opportunity, you know, like even something small, you know, just, if you see something, you're looking at it from your, 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 occupational lens. And that is something, you know, we need people to break from this sort of this mainstream plan of care, stamped out, railroaded, you know, sort of treatment and clinical practice that I see happening. We're so lucky. I feel like we're so lucky that we have OS that gives us this little hack that this whole time 
we have a, a spark of being somewhat critical of the overstandardization of the human experience. Yes. I, I, I've seen that as being a defiant little strain of all OTs and OS academics this whole time is like, but what if it's a non-standard path? Like what, what if you don't fit in these boxes? What are we going to do? Yeah. Exactly. We can answer that. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say, Dr. Dwyer, before you need to say, step off? Uh, no, I really appreciate being a part of this conversation. And I think just, I hope, hopefully that this has empowered anyone who's watching it to feel emboldened and, and um, keep going. It's yes, not going to end the conversation. Yeah, just because you may not be getting a lot of, uh, you know, we're the unsung heroes in, in a lot of, in almost every situation I've been a part of as an OT. And so I think that's really, you know, having a few more tools in your toolbox to better define and guide is just, is really awesome. Making our work visible to ourselves and we get to have sort of our own conversation about what this looks like and that we already have colleagues internationally that have developed this for decades at this point. So um, thank you to everyone that's been a part of this conversation. And if you need to step off, Dr. Dwyer, feel free. And I would like to invite um, the other two to also share any reflection that they feel inspired to impart to the students that are just getting this, like, I think, lush opportunity to get exposed to OS concepts for the first time. Thank you so much, too, for you guys' patience and investment in this conversation so far. I think I... Uh, Dr. Burwash, I want to honor just how much you've been a trailraiser in the relation to narrative inquiry and carving that road for OTs to go down this pathway here. And Anna, I think you're you're already just showing us what's possible through the demonstration of doing, of applying these concepts in a practice model and even sometimes not waiting to get permission. <laughs> I guess that's the thing that I feel like OS gives me permission to provide OT explicitly. And uh, just from that, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts that you want to share, what your sort of wishes are for OTs that have never been exposed to OS. What do you hope sort of awaits for them or what have you found to be really meaningful? And how is it like, if you also want to comment on how outside of systems and clients, how has it transformed your understanding of yourself and your own, you know, sort of life trajectory too? I think that's a richness of OS that hasn't been fully fleshed out in this conversation at least, but sorry, it's too much. I'm so bad at doing just declarative um, conversations. I just, I just want to say that, that I, I really hope that people taking this course really do feel both supported in what they're already doing and emboldened to do more and to 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 say more because uh, again you don't know who's listening and if you use a language that resonates say with an economist or a public health person or you know people outside of the traditional environments that we tend to operate in you never know what responses you're going to so so i would say boldly go forward knowing that you have an academic foundation that has your back in occupational science years of development i'm i'm a little bit defensive lately of people saying that os is in its infancy which i i just 
contest to that depending on what the definitions are that are being appealed to. But it, even in its most primordial state, it's undergone 30 years of active and practical development, especially internationally. It is a perspective to take seriously in a variety of different contexts, especially theoretically. Sorry to dismiss that one, but just I want to affirm not only do you have a science that has your backing as an OTP in the U.S. and beyond, it's one with three rich decades of robust development now internationally. So don't let anybody dismiss this just because it's more theoretical and sometimes abstract or qualitative doesn't mean that it's not just as serious. Sorry to cut you off, Dr. Susan, did you want to say anything else? No, I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I think reflecting on the question... I have a couple of things to say, but fucking first on the question of how us has kind of changed my view on like me as an occupational being and like where I go. It's I came into OT with a bit of a kind of like I, I was kind of felt like I was like born to be an OT. Didn't discover what OT was until my fourth year of my undergrad. But when I learned what it was, it's like that is like the definition is my dream career. Like that is what it is. When I came in after like grade 10, I read a book by um, disability rights activists came from Mike Bright Johnson called Accidents of Nature as a summer camp leader at the time is about ableism and a whole bunch of really violent stuff that happened at summer camp. Kind of fictional, non- a little semi-autobiographical. So that was kind of what led me towards the path of like, what can I do to work people so that like everyone in our world, we can do things that matter to us and that like fill our souls can connect in community. And since, Learning about OS also encouraged me to look more at like say like critical race studies and like Johnson Valley's paper. Like I, I'm Canadian, I have American ancestors, but I hadn't like I didn't learn much about racism in America until that paper. So like I mean I knew stuff about racism in America, but I learned a lot more of the history of it in that paper. So it's like okay, I need to go look into more into this. Or like, I need to, like it's a paper. Okay, I need to go look into more into this from like, say, disability justice, say from like, like post-colonial feminism, like just getting more connection in different communities and just like learning this as an academia, but then like stepping out of academia and connecting in community. Um, and just... I guess becoming more of an activist. <laughs> Do you find like I'm curious? So I'm tracking some of the conversations, yeah. especially in the U.S. Yeah, often those thinkers, and that gets cited. It, it's really perplexing to me. It gets cited as being more abstract and philosophical. But what I'm taking from what you're saying is, it, it's actually incredibly pragmatic, I think. And I I acknowledge, I use a very large vocabulary, which is going to be something I struggle with in this course Mm -hmm. too, because it might not be the most accessible. So this is probably just the Mm -hmm. first iteration of this course. We'll make it more accessible over time. But from what I'm hearing from you is that you're hearing and you're getting visibility around ways that systems haven't been designed to support everyone in their occupational well-being. Mm -hmm. You're able to take that information in a Publix Ivy Leave ivory tower somewhere. Yeah. And to contemplate it and reflect on it and think about wh- what that means for you and the context that you're in. And then, then, then broadening that lens and looking at your clients and imagining their occupational realities and 
maybe imagining new possibilities that this maybe was a system or these are the tendencies in the past, but maybe we can be critical of these systems or maybe we can imagine new systems and maybe we can build communities to change Mm -hmm. the experience of these systems so that they actually have a little bit more equitable empowerment, maybe more occupational well-being. Like you're going from like an Ivy League Tower published article to actually a process that's pretty grounded and pretty practically applicable. I'd say it's more even outside my OT work, it's just more connecting with people in community and be like, what could this be look look like? So it's more of us experience belonging. What could it be more like? So more of us are connecting and doing together. Like what what could that look like? I say beyond dancing with the unknown and letting there be new possibilities in some ways. And that's like to go back to that other point, which I hope can reverberate is the opportunity that comes from claiming ambiguity. Like we're so Mm -hmm. used to framing ambiguity and not having definitive terms in OT and OS as a weakness, as a fundamental flaw in the context of OT and OS. Yet I think when you really dance with these concepts, I think it's possibly our most strategic strength and in a, I think positions OS in an academic context as one of the more honest sciences <laughs> in my mind. And that, that just might be my own personal framing. But where I was trained, I was trained in the hard sciences in undergrad prior to becoming an OT. And so OT in a way has been a way for me to get more epistemic balance in my initial education in honoring the qualitative and seeing how these to um, mm-hmm. parts of the universe kind of connect with each other. But um, I guess what I want to express with that is it, sometimes I, when I was trained in the hard sciences, even in the hardest of sciences that I got trained in, science and certainty don't really go hand in hand. If you're mm-hmm. following an integrity in a scientific process in a pure reductionist and deductive framework, it will maybe give you something predictable that can be reliable in a controlled context over rhythmic time, but it still just resists falsification. It never really will grant you a certain declarative stance about how the universe functions and works. It can just be your best guess. Mm-hmm. From that training, I've always had a lot of cognitive dissonance around this notion that science is supposed to give you a certain black and white, this is the truth answer. And what I love about OS is it's honest that it's not going to ever really give you a solid declarative answer, both in the physical world and in the qualitative world. And I think we may be one of the only social sciences and hard sciences discipline that is actually honest about that to this day, personally. And maybe I'm overly gloating about OS, but I think it's a beautiful thing to know that there are things that are currently unknown. Yeah. I think it really, that's what OS points out to me is it shows me, oh, this is another thing I don't know about. Like, this is another thing I don't know about. And I will have a little bit of a caution, like with the community connection part that I don't do my OT role. It's just like, OS is pointing me, okay, like, how can I be a better game in my communities? There are some communities space I, I shouldn't enter as a white woman because then doing that would be harmful so also respecting those boundaries is also important the other piece I want to kind of bring forward is as a clinician I come from a background where 
I'm, my family's pretty linguistic, so I'm pretty good at learning words and understanding what they mean, just that kind of thing. But this, a lot of clinicians are like, well, I don't understand this at all. Like, what is this? And what I found really helpful is like, if I email the first author of the paper, like we can start these conversations and just like, it builds that connection, which can help learning and learning for everyone in that conversation. So it's okay to not know people. We're all humans. We're all humans. Just like reach out and connect. And sometimes people won't respond. That's that's that. (laughs) But sometimes people will. And it starts like beautiful relationships and just like learning, shared learning. And then everybody that goes through this course, there's a community (laughs) element. So even if you're not connecting with the authors, but you find other people that are inspired by these concepts or you want to explore other concepts... That is one of the beautiful things about OS. And I wanted to also hearken back to Susan's point about interdisciplinarity, which is a a really amazing gift that OS offers us. The notion of OS being a basic science, and we'll go over this in future modules, means that you're also allowed to um, think about and explore these concepts totally separate from practice. You get to kind of do a work-life balance separation at times with OS doesn't mean you always have to have your OT cap on and you don't always have to be thinking about the bureaucratic barriers and how things are divided at your practice between physical therapy, social work, and OT. With OS, you just get to dive into like a nice little fun theory pool and contemplate about what these things mean on your own terms and wait. Do we have either of you gotten to delve into OS in that way? separated yeah. from OT entirely. Yeah, totally. Like I think about the world and like what, again, I, it does happen in the civilian, like my professions looking at civilian context, but like, I also need to know like, what does a civilian, like what does life look like in Victoria, BC? How are these different forces operating? Like kind of pairing, looking at OS concepts and how does that play out in life here? How does it relate? Does it fit? Does it not fit? Maybe you get to do this as a lifelong learner too, outside Hmm. of academia. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I see like a PhD in my future, but I'm also like, I don't want to go do that until I'm 50, 55, 60, because I really love clinical work. But until then I'm going to be kind of off the side looking and reading and like thinking and like, Hey, what am I really interested in? What do I want to focus on? And what, like in relation to my community and the communities I'm part of and connected with. What I'm imagining for some folks that maybe take this course is maybe it's been a long time. Maybe it's been 12 years since they were anything close in an academic setting, or maybe they didn't get an opportunity to engage with these Mm -hmm. questions, or there's classically this notion of like, I don't want theory. I hate theory. I just want to focus on practice theory, well, or maybe it was just never something they got invited into. Mm -hmm. I would love like Dr. Barash's thoughts on this because you were bringing up that your OT education didn't really cover many theoretical parts of it. And it was something that you ended up kind of exploring as a clinician and as a post-grad. And somehow you found your way into these conversations as a potentially humble, newish grad, right? You said you graduated in 79. So some of these threads you picked up on in even the mid-80s, so before OS even developed. What, what guidance would you have for field clinicians where it's been a long time since they've been in, or maybe they don't see themselves having any relation to theory, theory at all? How, I mean, how has it created richness into your life and how, how could, 
how can we create a sense where they know that this is something they're allowed to do? It is an open, warm pool for them to swim in. I don't know how to frame the conversation, but I know you're a great exemplar of a lifelong learner and somebody that dared to be involved in these conversations before you were appropriately credentialed. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways this happens is you do have some kind of disorienting dilemma in practice. And I think a way to start pulling your knowledge of OS through is, is to find something that really bothers you in practice and then think about it using an OS lens. And I think that's the way you start to learn the language and that's the way you start to think about what might some of the solutions be outside of perhaps your typical practice. So so I, I was the person who got to teach theory in most of the places that I've taught. And it was often first semester. And, and I knew that people were sitting there with their eyes glazing over. But I also knew that they came back a few years later and said, you know, that was really helpful. Um, and I wish I'd paid more attention. So, but I think it, it comes down to as OTs were very, as you said, very pragmatic. And so find something that really bothers you and try and pull in some of the OS. She'll learn, hopefully from this course, you'll get some jumping off points of these constructs with the qualifier that will go over that. I'll define some of these terms, but that doesn't mean that those are the only definition of those terms, which is frustrating, but also maybe kind of amazing. Sorry to call you <laughs> Dr. Burwash. That's true. So that's kind of, that is that kind of how you got pulled into some of the wanting, hungering for more, you, you, almost hungering more for theory after you were in the field, then it's almost like we get it backwards. We teach theory at the beginning and it's almost like we need to circle back to it at the end too. Yeah, I think we need to do it at both ends. And I think, you know, it's important to have that beginning of that personal identity as an OT from the beginning, but then really come back and say, okay, now that you've had a bit more experience, how are you seeing this? And what else do you need to know? And what else will help you in your practice? Maybe so, what you have to offer the future development of the field with these insights now that you've been, um, I will explore later in a module that to me, OS has been very um, akin an OT to field biology compared to theoretical biology. And that those of us were always working in a field context and have unique insights in that regard. Well, I want to be really respectful for your time on a Saturday. And just, I hope you can feel my gratitude for being open to be sort of that role model of showing that other clinicians that uh, this is something we're all connected to uh, across the generations and that we have uh, shared in, in many ways. I think when we explore, we have shared goals for OT and, you know, whether it's the OT we want to receive, the OT that we want to offer, or just the general world that we want to live in as occupational beings or as uh, great stewards of privilege, that even just being on this computer right now or holding this phone in your hands, you have so much opportunity to contribute to a new evolution of this occupational world that we live in. And you're invited to be a part of this conversation, hopefully in an empowered and accountable way. 
and that we can bring more visible visibility to what was previously invisible. And even though it's hard and disorienting and a struggle, uh, most of us, you know, Dr. Burrish, you brought, you brought up having something that really bugs you in practice. I found that these conversations are often painful. They um, are really confronting and they can be disruptive. Um, to your personal life and to your practice life, they're, they're challenging to reconcile. And part of that and with the invitation of this course is that you're not alone and you get to do this in community. And I hope that you can find people that you feel some solace with and some validation of the reality that you're navigating as a clinician today, because this is not easy work. Just because it's theoretical doesn't mean it's not practical in a way, I, I hope that having this lens can help you see that the challenges that you're facing are real and that we are going to need to change how we understand practice-based resource, resources and care. And that's why we need more people, a part of the conversation. And we don't want, I don't want you to be alone in this. So I want you to know this language so that we can start building community, not just in academia and in some of these like annual conferences that happen in faraway places. We as clinicians can start imagining and building what we need now in the field to help these seeds take root in a way that it's not that it's um, therapeutic and resourcing to you as a clinician and not something that's dismissive to your practice. So I think all three of these uh, speakers that we've had today has shown that even if it was a little bit different learning about occupational science for the first time, it ultimately became something that was really resourcing and nourishing and permissive to the practice that they want to do.